And please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts. We are in still in Acts chapter 2, and we'll be there for yet a couple more weeks. Acts chapter 2. Questions. Probably every day we are asking questions of some shape or form. Uh, We probably don't even realize how questions dominate much of our thinking and much of our discourse. Uh, Some questions, of course, are of low consequence, like, where are we going to eat tonight? Other questions are good questions, but they're not immediately answerable, like, will I get a raise? Or will this candidate or that candidate win the election? Some questions are pretty weighty and pretty memorable, like, will you marry me? I've often heard well-meaning, big-hearted teachers say there are no such thing as stupid questions. I beg to differ. I've heard a few in my time and asked a few as well. But out of all of the questions someone might ask, what would be the the, the very best and most important and most consequential and most life-changing question that you could ask? I think that question actually is in our sermon text today in Acts chapter 2, but, but to set the scene, we have to go back to Acts chapter 1, which actually also opens with a question of its own. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus was talking with his disciples about the kingdom of God, and they asked him, is at this time, Jesus, is it this time that you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And some might categorize their question as one of those stupid questions. I don't think so. You see, the disciples longed for the glory of Israel to be restored, to return to the good old days of of King David who defeated Israel's enemies and kept Israel's people safe. And, And the ancient prophetic scriptures promised a restoration of God's people ruled by God's special king, the Messiah. And so, Naturally, the disciples are hopeful that with the resurrection of Jesus, the the heir of King David, uh, Israel's return to power and glory, surely is just around the corner. Their question was not stupid, but it was short-sighted because God's purpose in the world was not to have the son of David merely reign over a little dot on the map but that every square inch of that map would be blanketed, would be covered by his rule. And so Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for God's Holy Spirit to come upon them, to give them the power and the boldness and the ability to faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel of the kingdom, starting there in Jerusalem. Uh, The center of that, that old Davidic kingdom would be the fitting starting point of God's global takeover, And Jesus says, you're going to start in Jerusalem, and you're going to take this message to the ends of the earth, extending to all peoples everywhere God's gracious invitation to be a part of a global kingdom, enjoying God's rule and reign and blessing now and forever. And in Acts 2, the Spirit comes and fills Jesus' disciples. And they received the power to speak in foreign tongues, foreign languages, which is a very fitting miracle because it's the holiday of Pentecost, which means you have Jews from every nation under heaven that have descended upon Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. And they're there, and they're hearing the disciples preaching and extolling the mighty works of God in their own native languages, which leads to yet another important question. Uh, The people there start asking, what does this mean? That is most definitely not a stupid question. It's a great question. 
And the Apostle Peter gets everyone's attention, and he answers that question with a sermon. He says, the Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled uh, that said in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just a handful of select uh, leaders in Israel as in the days of old. No, Uh, now all of God's people receive the spirit's empowerment for ministry and service to God. And so the phenomena of tongues is a signal of the multi-ethnic international makeup of God's kingdom, no longer restricted to Israel, but something that is to expand to every corner of the world, people everywhere would receive God's spirit. And if the last days are indeed here, that means that God's judgment is coming. And, and the global international nature of the kingdom should be seen as a final last call to the entire world to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And that that Lord is none other than Jesus Christ. He was attested to by God with mighty works and signs. He was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was raised from the dead and he has ascended to heaven to rule and reign and it is he who is now pouring out the Spirit on his people. And here's the punchline. It's in verse 36 of chapter 2 where Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The one whom the Jews mocked and scorned and rejected and murdered turns out to be their king, their Lord, their Christ. And as the reality of what they have done sinks in, verse 37 says that they ask, what shall we do? They, they want to know how they can escape the coming judgment of God that they deserve for committing treason against and rejecting their king. And that is the most important question anyone can ask. Uh, when someone is confronted with the, the heinousness of their sin and when they consider whom it is that they have sinned against, there is no more important question to ask than that. And, and Peter's response is, in essence, a primer on how to become a Christian, which is a topic relevant for Christians, because you are God's ambassadors in the world. You need to know how to clearly and succinctly tell people how to be saved. And some of you struggle with that because you overcomplicate it. You overthink it. But our passage in Acts really just boils it down to to just three things. Uh, Two explicitly said by Peter, and then there's another thing that is strongly implied here and taught elsewhere in the scriptures. Just three things. And of course, if you are an unbeliever, I can't think of a a better message that that I I have preached in recent times than than this one for you to hear. Uh, So let's look at Peter's response, and let's let's stand now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. We are in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 37 and read on down through verse 41. God's word says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, I don't deserve to be even standing up here with the privilege of preaching your word, but you've called me to do that in this moment. And so I pray that you would help me to to do it with clarity, to do it rightly. Uh, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are hearing the word that your spirit would speak to them, uh, that they would hear and perceive and understand the message your spirit has for this church. Father, I pray for any in our midst who may be unbelievers, that your Holy Spirit would cut them to the heart, and that today they might experience your salvation as they receive King Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, even as America continues to sprint in a direction away from God, there are nevertheless many people today in our country who claim to be Christians. I read something the other day that said that almost 80% of Georgians are Christians. Eight out of ten in Georgia. If that's true, you'd only have 20% unbelievers. And folks, I don't believe that for a second. I really don't. You flip that and you might be closer to the truth. Maybe 20% are real Christians. Maybe. I think that might be a little high. But I, I don't think that any, anywhere close to 80% of people in Georgia are Christians as defined by Acts chapter 2, where we are told of, of three specific things that one must do in response to the gospel. But before we consider those things, it's, I think it's imperative to realize that there is an all-important prerequisite to becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian doesn't start with what you do. It starts with what God does in you. It starts with a conviction of sin. Verse 37 says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And the Greek word there for cut means to be pierced, to be stabbed. Uh, they were stabbed with a feeling of deep remorse and, and sorrow, even anguish. The realization of their sin and guilt struck them to the very core of their being as what they had done finally sinks in. They hadn't just killed anybody, that would be bad enough. But the one they murdered was Christ himself, the Son of God. Indeed, God in the flesh, they had murdered their king. In some way, shape, or form, to become a Christian, one must have some sense that he has sinned against God and is guilty. And while no one fully realizes the extent of his sin, we're all worse than we realize, uh, some sense of conviction over sin is a prerequisite for salvation because how can you be forgiven of something if you don't even think you've done anything wrong? Uh, You're not going to seek forgiveness. Uh, Indeed, you'll be offended by the suggestion that you need forgiveness, and so you're going to reject the forgiveness that's offered. Now, how was the crowd so moved? How were they cut to the heart? Was it because of Peter's eloquence? Was it because of his rhetorical skills, his, his cleverness? No. Remember, Peter was a rough, gruff, uneducated Galilean fisherman. That's right, he was from Galilee, where the people had funny accents. Nobody under normal circumstances would listen to anything that Peter would have to say. So, how were 3,000 people cut to the heart? 
They were cut through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 16? He said, and when he comes, he being the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is moving big time among these thousands of people. But it's not just the Spirit in isolation working in this way. Look again at verse 37. When exactly were they cut to the heart? Text says, when they heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard what? When they heard the word. The word that Peter was preaching. You know, if you scan your eyes back up uh, the, the prior verses and, and examine Peter's whole sermon from verse 14 to verse 36, look at how much of it is dominated by the Bible. The truth of Scripture saturates Peter's message, and it is the Spirit working through the Word that impacts lives and changes hearts. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is the Spirit working through the Word. That's why here at Harbin's, I'm not really concerned about you know, trying to be some awesome, powerful, super eloquent, uh, super clever preacher or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not interested in, in trying to, you know, whip up anybody's emotions through, you know, mood music that comes during the climax of the sermon or, or anything like that. I, I, I simply want to preach the Word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit will work through the Word to impact your lives, to impact your heart. That's how God does business with His people. And this is why, brothers and sisters, as you are ministering to unbelievers, uh, whether they're friends or family or, or co-workers or whomever, at the end of the day, for them to be saved, they must hear the Word of God. We won't see people saved by just being nice, good neighbors to them. Now, we need to be nice, good neighbors, for sure. But faith comes by not you being a nice, good neighbor. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is the truth of God's word that cuts to the heart and ultimately is the thing that awakens faith in people. And friends, that should be so freeing to you as you share the gospel with others. You don't need to have all the, the, the apologetic answers to all the questions that somebody might raise. You don't need to have spellbinding speaking ability. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't even have to have graduated from grade school. You simply need to know what this word says. You need to know what the scriptures say about sin and the coming judgment and who Jesus is and how he provides a way out of judgment and how the sinner should respond to that. And then as you share that, you are trusting that the spirit will work through the word that you share. And Peter's audience is so convicted by their sin, they don't even wait for Peter to finish his message. Verse 37 says, the people are cut to the heart, and they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, don't get nervous about this talk of doing something, especially if you're you're theologically nitpicky. (laughs) Don't say, well, well, that sounds like salvation by works. What are you talking about? What, What shall we do? Friends, these folks are asking a completely legitimate question, the most important question. 
It's the same question that the Philippian jailer will ask Paul in Acts 16 when he says, what must I do to be saved? And and when he asks that, Paul does not shout, heresy, you're a Pelagian. That's not salvation by works. Instead, he tells him how to be saved. When the word of God is preached, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God uses that to land on a sinner with weight and power and conviction, it drives the guilty sinner to sense his great need, and he knows that a response of some sort is required of him. It is good and right to ask the question, what must I do? That isn't denying God's sovereign work in salvation, but on the other hand, God's work in saving the sinner doesn't mean that the sinner is just to be passive. I like how, how Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, that Peter was not like those hyper-Calvinists who are afraid to give an exhortation to a sinner because he is spiritually dead. But he spoke out boldly to those who had asked, what shall we do? Spurgeon's right. There there are three things that that one must do according to this section in Acts here. There are are three responses to the gospel that is is required. And as our text unfolds, we're given these, these things that one must do to respond. And Peter says in verse 38 that the first thing you are to do is to repent. You are to repent. I wonder if it's surprising to some of you that nowhere in Peter's response does he mention believe or have faith. Now, time and again from this pulpit, I've said that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Indeed, Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer when he says, what must I do to be saved? Uh, Paul's answer was not repent, but believe on the Lord Jesus. But here, Peter answers the same question with the word repent. So does that contradict the message of salvation by grace through faith alone? Are there two ways to be saved? Well, before we go there, we should first ask the question, what what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? The Greek word means to change one's mind. And certainly that would be a part of repentance. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is calling on the Jews to change their mind about Jesus. Formally, they they believed Jesus to be a false prophet, blasphemer, even demon-possessed. They saw Jesus as wrong, and they saw themselves as right. But part of repentance is flipping that script and is recognizing that I've been wrong the whole time about the identity and the worth and the value and the rightness of Jesus. But repentance is actually more than that. Some would say that repentance is feeling sorrow or remorse over sin. But it's actually more than that. Judas had sinned gravely. He had betrayed the Lord Jesus for money, and he felt bad about it, and he hung himself, and he went to hell. The Bible elsewhere talks about two kinds of sorrow. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas had a worldly kind of sorrow. It was, it was self-centered. It was, it was, it was uh, inwardly focused, and, and that led to death, literally. But godly grief actually leads you in a positive direction. It, 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 turns, it turns your attention uh, away from self and, and, and outward to God, and it leads to repentance. So, so that, again, begs the question, what is repentance? Well, 
while the idea of repent in the Greek is to change is, 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 is change of mind, in the Hebrew the idea is, is more like to turn. Uh, to repent is to turn, it's to change your direction. One moment you're walking in rebellion against Jesus and you're doing your own thing and, and, and you are at the center and you are ruling your life because you want to be Lord. You're going in this direction and to repent is to turn. It's to go in a, a different di- direction. It, it's, to, it, it's, it's not perfection, but it is a change of direction. Uh, I, I previously resisted the Lord Jesus Christ but now I'm going to turn around. I'm going to seek to abandon my sin. I'm going to turn towards God. I'm no longer going to seek to be Lord. I'm going to gladly receive Jesus as Lord. I don't want to be at the center anymore. I want Jesus to be at the center. And Peter is telling his audience here, not just to feel bad, but to change direction. They had previously stiff-armed Jesus and, 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 disregarded his lordship, but now they must submit to that lordship and they must receive him. I love how the Apostle Paul describes the repentance of the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, and he says that, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And, and I find it hard to believe that 80% of the people in Georgia have done that have truly turned from their idols of materialism, of sex, of career, of, of relationships, of, of self-centered pr- pursuits. I find it hard to believe that, that 80% of Georgians have repented from their desire to be king of their lives and to serve Jesus as king. I, I think Georgia would be a totally different place if 80% of us were diligently following Jesus, don't you? Uh, the problem is that many people who call themselves Christians on these surveys merely see Jesus as an add-on to their lives, as somebody who can help them to improve and tidy up a few things about their lives, maybe get them out of a jam when they're in trouble, while they themselves can remain Lord of their lives and in charge. Jesus is just one of the many things that, that, that helps a, a, a pagan life. You know, I've got my lifestyle, I've got my, my career and my money, that makes me happy. I, I work out at the gym, so that, that, that helps me to be healthy, and, I'm, I'm a throw, and I eat right, and I throw in Jesus over here. But, but I'm at the center still of all of those things, and it's all about me. I, I've met many who have labeled themselves Christian, and yet there's absolutely nothing in their life that distinguishes them from anybody else. And the Apostle John clearly says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so, brother and sister, when you are sharing the gospel with unbelievers, you've got to call them to repentance. You know, that was among Jesus' last words to the disciples. He said in Luke 24 that repentance should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all nations. So, then, then what, about, what about faith? What about belief? Are there two ways to be saved, one by faith and one by repentance? Not at all. Not at all. The statement that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is 100% true. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, for it is the power of God for salvation uh, to everyone who believes. And then he writes later in, uh, in Ephesians 
Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works. It is faith in Jesus, uh, trusting in his sufficient work on the cross, trusting in his righteousness and not your own to save you. It is faith alone which justifies, but as a popular phrase coined during the Reformation says, while we are justified by faith alone, the faith which justifies is never alone. This is why, this is, this is what James was getting at. Remember James in James chapter 2? He says that as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. In other words, true faith, saving faith, brings repentance along with it. And so repentance and saving faith are two sides of the same coin. They aren't to be separated. In fact, if you look down to verse 44, we know that these 3,000 souls that responded to Peter's message did indeed have faith because it says they believed. But how do we know? How do we know that they believed? We know because they repented. That's the evidence of their faith. Here's another great passage in Acts that ties repentance and faith together. It's chapter 26, verse 18. Uh, when, where, where, Paul, where Jesus says to Paul that he's sending him to preach to the Gentiles. And why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you see them both there in the same passage, the idea of turning, repentance, and the idea of faith. Again, two sides of the same coin. So that's why in your gospel presentations, you must also preach repentance. Because when you preach repentance, you are in essence calling out faith. You're asking people to demonstrate and live out that faith. If you just tell people to believe, especially in our culture today, 80% of Georgians will tell you that they already believe. But most of them don't know what that means. They think it means mental assent. They think it means agreement with the facts to the, about Jesus. But the one who refuses to follow Jesus demonstrates that he is one who does not trust Jesus. He does not have faith. He still thinks his own way is better, and he still wants to be Lord. And there have been many occasions where I've preached the gospel to someone and they agree with the facts of the gospel and they want to be saved and they say they believe and they seem to be very agreeable to the gospel. But then when I get to that repentance part, all of a sudden, they're like the rich young ruler. Remember that guy? The rich young ruler? Uh, he, he came up to Jesus and, and he asked him, what must I do to get eternal life? And, and Jesus said, sell everything and follow me. And, and he said that because he, he wasn't preaching salvation through philanthropy, but he knew that this man worshiped money, that he loved money more than he loved God. So what was he doing? He was calling him to repentance. And, and he calls him to do this. And, and do you remember how the story ends? It's really depressing. It says the guy walked away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He wouldn't repent. Why was he sad? He was sad that he couldn't have Jesus, but the prospect of giving up his sinful life made him more sad. And so he walked away unrepentant and unsaved. Again, to be clear, it is not the repentant good works you are doing that merit salvation. Make that very, very clear in your head. 
Jesus has merited salvation for you. And you're trusting in him and in his merits and in his work. But the deeds of repentance are the fleshing out of faith. It's the outflow of faith. John Calvin said this, he said, repentance not only always follows faith, but is produced by it. It's produced by it, that's helpful. Another way of putting it is that uh, faith is at the root of your salvation, and repentance or works is the fruit of your salvation. But if there's one, there will be the other there. If you have faith, you will repent. If you won't repent, you don't have faith. So one must respond to the gospel by repentance. But next, you also must be baptized. Be baptized. Now, that probably surprises some of you. That's that's on the list. It's probably not in any of our normal gospel presentations. Baptism is linked to repentance. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Now, baptism for the Jews symbolized a cleansing of sin and and, an initiatory right into the people of God. But the radical thing about Peter's call to baptism here is that in the Jewish world, y'all, baptism was for Gentiles. It was for them, those people, uh, for heathen idol worshipers who now wanted to break from their old life and abandon their old gods and join God's true people. But, but almost all the people in the crowd that day in Acts 2, they were already Jews. They already saw themselves as God's people, as people God already regarded as righteous. And so in this way, baptism would have been very humiliating to the proud, religious, self-righteous Jew. Uh, to submit to baptism was to confess that they were as sinful and unrighteous as the heathens. But in addition to repenting of their sin, baptism was a way of repenting of their righteousness. Uh, Repenting of the false hope that they put in their own religiosity, their own prideful attempts to be righteous and acceptable to God. For the Jew, baptism was both dying to their sinful life and dying to their vain righteousness and instead trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, Just like repentance, the actual act of baptism, of going through the water, does not merit salvation. This isn't works righteousness. But just like repentance, baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality, of the faith that saves. In fact, in a letter written years after Acts 2, Peter himself explains this when he says, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, One commentator puts it this way. He says, in other words, it is not the act, but the attitude behind it that has the efficacy of yielding forgiveness. Getting physically clean doesn't save you. Getting dirt off the body is not the thing that saves you, Peter is saying. The appeal to God for a good conscience does save. Uh, the crying out to God for forgiveness and mercy, and that, of, and that, of course, is ultimately a matter of the heart's disposition. 
Only those who have demonstrated that inner heart's disposition are the proper candidates for the outward ritual of baptism. What's more, baptism is a public declaration of allegiance, not just to God in general, but to Jesus in particular. That's why Peter emphasizes here being baptized in the name of Jesus. That is a big deal. Uh, It's an identification with Jesus. It's an identification with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection and and, and newness of life. Uh, Because the believer is united to Jesus by faith, baptism says that the believer has has also died. His old life is gone and buried, and in its place comes a brand new, transformed, and repented life. And so for these Jews, their baptism would have been a huge deal, uh, where they would publicly declare allegiance to Jesus, to the Jesus they formerly rejected. And more than that, they would be declaring Jesus to be their Lord and their God. Now, can someone be saved and not be baptized? Technically, yes. Last week, we baptized Al. That was a great experience. And and five minutes before he was put under under the water by Pastor Jared, he was saved. In fact, we would not have baptize him if we had doubts that he was saved. But imagine if Al broke his leg on the way up the stairs to the baptismal, and so he had to delay baptism. If that happened, folks, I would not be afraid for his soul. Oh no, he hasn't hasn't gotten in yet. We got to hurry up and reschedule this. I wouldn't be afraid for his soul because again, it's the attitude of the heart that ultimately matters. But On the other hand, what if someone says they are saved and that they believe in Jesus, but they refuse to be baptized? Even after you tell them about what Jesus has to say about baptism and the importance of baptism and how it is not an option. Well, I can't put it any better than Albert Barnes who said that if people are unwilling to profess religion, they have none. If they will not, in the proper way, show that they are truly attached to Christ, it is proof that they have no such attachment. To be in willful, stubborn disobedience, honestly, to any command of Scripture calls into question one's allegiance to Christ. It was a tremendous act of faith to be baptized in a first century Jewish culture where Identification with Jesus could cost you your position in society, it could cost you your family, it could even cost you your life. And by the way, it is like that in many parts of the world today. You get baptized and you've got a target on your back. You get baptized and you can kiss worldly acceptance goodbye. But despite the risks, the New Testament knows nothing of a believer who would willfully refuse baptism. That would be considered scandalous. If we are stubbornly unwilling to make that profession of, of allegiance or, or that profession of, of salvation and how he saves, then, then how can we be allied with him and be saved by him? Well, what will happen to the repentant believer who puts his trust in and gives his allegiance to Jesus? Peter says, you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. Now, folks, that should just blow you away. Remember, these people had just committed 
the most heinous crime in the universe. It does not get worse than rejecting, scorning, and murdering the innocent Son of God. There is no greater offense. And the risen Jesus had every right to come down from heaven with a sword and annihilate every single person in Jerusalem that day, blood for blood. And I'm sure that is exactly what many in that crowd would have been worried about when Peter was pointing an accusing finger at them and was saying, you crucified this man. And guess what? He's alive. And you know what they must be thinking? If he's alive, I'm dead. I'm dead. But amazingly, Peter says, because he's alive, you can be forgiven. Because as heinous as Jesus' murder was, it was... As you, as you can see back up in verse 23, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not a victim. All along, the plan had been for him to die as a blood sacrifice, to have their murderous sins and the sins of the world put on and punished in him. Jesus didn't want his people to pay the price for their own sins in hell, so he suffered hell for them. He took on the wrath of God himself. And do you remember, do you remember one of Jesus' final words on the cross? It was a prayer, a prayer for his murderers. As they are murdering him, he is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus came not to pour out wrath on his enemies, but to take God's wrath in their place so that they might be saved. And, and, so, and so then receive forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Spirit, which is the seal, the guarantee that, that believers, his former enemies, are now children of God. As it says in Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so to be baptized is to be publicly identified as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter of the King. But also, the person who is baptized also identifies with God's people. And so the third response of the gospel is you must join a church. You must join a church. Now, this is not explicit in the text, but it is implicitly there. Excuse me. Look at verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That language, crooked generation, is reminiscent of the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy 32.5 where Moses speaks of rebellious Israel in the wilderness as a crooked and twisted generation. Peter now applies that language to the entire world, and his exhortation to the audience to save themselves from this crooked generation implies that salvation is not a personal experience with no reference to anybody else. Instead, part of salvation involves a breaking of ties and a change of relationship with the crooked and twisted world that is in vehement opposition to and rebellion against Christ. That relationship now changes. 
But that separation from the people of the world also leads to a union with a new people, the people of God. So Christians are not supposed to be just forgiven and isolated on their own. Instead, God is building a new people, a new community that is 180 degrees opposite from the crooked world. And that community is known in the Bible as the church. In the Greek, that word church is the word ekklesia. It means the called out ones. The idea is that God is calling his people away from the dark world, out of that world that rebels against Jesus' kingship, and calling them into a new people that happily submits to that kingship. I like how John Stott puts it, uh, commenting on these verses. He writes that Peter was not asking for private and individual conversions only, but for a public identification with other believers. Commitment to the Messiah implied commitment to the Messianic community, that is the church. Indeed, they would have to change communities, transferring their membership from one that was old and corrupt to one that was new and being saved. Now, when Acts chapter two began, that community, that church, was only 120 believers. But but look now at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. It is interesting that this is happening during the, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, And this mass salvation is a sign, it's a signal, it's the first fruits, which which implies that there's much more to come. Many more people are going to come and and, and flood into the kingdom of God. 3,000 souls were added that day. Now, there have been a lot of books written over the years about church growth. And they're full of all kinds of strategies, all kinds of marketing techniques. But how did this new church grow? This church grew 26 times its original number in one day through the preaching of God's word and the, and the Holy Spirit working through that word. That's how the church grows. And I want to emphasize that these 3,000 weren't just saved. They actually joined the community of believers and they shared life with them and committed to one another in that community. They, they broke off from their old community and they identified with something new. Ephesians chapter two tells us that in reconciling people to himself and joining them together in his body, the church, Jesus is forming a new humanity full of people who are radically countercultural in their lives, and that serves to point others towards the kingdom of God. Another teacher uh, put it this way, the church is not simply an aggregation of individuals who are saved, but it is a pilot plant of what humanity should look like under the lordship of Christ. You could put it this way. Uh, The local church is an embassy of God's kingdom in this world. Our lifestyle as a community, let's apply this to Harbin's now. Uh, We here at Harbin's, we are meant to be an embassy of God's kingdom. Uh, There are other little embassies scattered throughout the area. There's, There's Hebrew church down the road, and and there's others as well. But we are one of those embassies, those outposts of of God's 
kingdom and, and how we live, how this kingdom community lives right here in this church, how we treat one another in this little family speaks a word about our king to the culture out there. As Paul says in Philippians chapter two, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's writing to a local congregation there. And and what's the purpose of of a light? It's to illuminate something so that it can be seen. And what we want seen is our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Indeed, Peter himself says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. And just as the New Testament knew no such thing as an unbaptized believer, It knows nothing of a believer who is willfully and stubbornly and rebelliously disconnected from commitment to a local congregation. Again, it's it's the same with with baptism and deeds of repentance. Those those acts themselves don't merit salvation. Just just because somebody's name is on a membership role in a church doesn't automatically make them saved. And then there's some people who are between churches and, you know, all, all that sort of thing. But, but, to, but to plant your flag and, and to say, I, I'm not going to have anything to do with Jesus' people, and yet I claim to be one of Jesus' people, there, there's a disconnect there. there there's, a, there's a problem there. Now, next week we're going to take a closer look at some of the specific characteristics of a, of a local church and, and, and how, how is this local embassy to live, how, how is it to function in the world? That's for next week. But if you're here right now this morning as an unbeliever, you now know everything you need to know to be saved. You have sinned, and you know it. And what you don't know is how bad it really is. It was not just some Jews in the first century who killed Christ. And it wasn't just some Roman governor and Roman soldiers who did this. Friend, all of us are actually complicit in the murder of Jesus. Because all of us have been part of a world system that hates and despises God. We all as individuals have committed treason against Jesus. Because we've all desired to be our own king and and control our own lives apart from him. You know, Jesus once said that you don't have to physically murder somebody to be guilty of murder. You just have to hate someone. The Bible says that as sinners we have all hated God. Romans 5.10 says that you're an enemy of God. Colossians 1.21 says you're hostile against Him. That's your condition if you're here this morning as an unbeliever. And the sin that led these, those, those people back in the, way back in the first century, the sin that led them to mock and scorn and spit upon and nail Jesus to a piece of wood, that sin has been in our own hearts as well. All of us. While some say if you were the only one on this planet, Jesus would have still died for you. I say if you were the only person on this planet, you would have killed him. And you need to recognize that. You need to realize that. As much as that might hurt your, your pride and your sense of self-righteousness, that needs to sink in. And you need to feel the weight of what you have done. And I can't make you feel that. 
But I pray that the Spirit of God will cut you to the heart so you feel it. If you're watching by video, I pray that the Spirit of God will cut you by the heart to the heart so you would feel that and understand that. And if you do feel the weight of your sin and guilt washing over you and you wonder what you can do, to that I say, I'm glad you asked. I say, repent. Turn from your sin. And turn to God. Turn to the forgiveness he offers in Christ. The same Christ you killed is also the same Christ who died to save people like you. While you hated God, the scriptures say that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So repent and he will welcome you. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. He will welcome you, not with a sword, but with open arms. Repent. And be baptized, appeal to God for a clean conscience on the basis of his death and burial and resurrection. There is not a single work, including baptism, that can save you. But appealing to him can save you. Give your allegiance to Jesus. Die to your old self. Walk in newness of life. And then join a church. Again, this is not salvation by being on a membership role. But it is a means of doing what Peter said. Save yourself from this crooked generation. And I pray that you are being called out of a people that is in darkness and being called into a new people and that you will identify with God's people and with God's family, God's kingdom kingdom embassy. Uh, Not for the purpose of looking down on the world as if you're better than those who don't know Jesus but for the purpose of being a light so that they too might know and love him. Well, next week we'll talk more about what that kingdom community, that kingdom embassy looks like to be continued. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word and thank you so much that despite the heinousness of our sin, And despite the predicament that we find ourselves in, that no good work, no personal effort on our part can save us, thank you nonetheless that you have offered salvation as a free gift to those who receive it. Not by works, but by trusting in the work of Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that. Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that Yes, we repented when we first came to Christ, but we know that repentance is a, is a lifestyle. So help us to, to, to walk in that repentant, humble attitude every single day. And help us to be a people who uh, we, we have on the forefront of the mind the, the reality that our primary allegiance needs to be to Jesus Christ. And forgive us for those times where, where that allegiance gets shaky. We all struggle with that. And Father, I pray that you would help us to renew our our commitments and our love for the the local congregation. Uh, You have not just saved us to be isolated individuals. You're not saving just isolated individuals. You're saving a people, a people for yourself. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you would help this people and this local congregation to be salt and light in the world for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.